It's a story of how God indeed will be our God and we will be his people. He will restore such intimate relations with us that it will be Emmanuel. God living once again with his people. And this one story has six episodes. And today, in looking at the promise that God made to Moses on Mount Sinai, we're going to see that the promise that he made to Moses is for a very intimate relationship with his people. Abraham was promised to be a numerous and great nation. He was promised numeric prosperity. In other words, a childless 90-year-old man was promised to turn into a great nation. But as we see here in our scriptures, Moses, in verse 6, is promised, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, a promise is made to be a great nation, but this great nation will have God as their king. And as he is a holy God, unlike any other false god in the world, they will be unlike and separate, that's what holy means, from any people. There will be observable differences within his people, and thus he will set up his kingdom. So in looking at each of the covenant promises, we find that we have an opportunity for our faith, for our hearts, which grow so very, very discouraged. We have an opportunity for our heart's functional trust, for confidence in God to be regained, restored, or refreshed with the acknowledgement that God indeed keeps his promises. At this point, standing at the base of the mountain, I should say camped in the shadow of Mount Sinai, are a people that number in over a million. And they started with just one childless couple, Abraham and Sarah. So God has kept his promise. God comes to Moses now, and he comes and he endorses three things. He says, number one, the the covenant is the same that I made previously. Number two, the covenant is also distinct. He begins to spell out, how this story now has another chapter to it. And then we'll finally see that this covenant has never ended. It didn't end with the New Testament appearance of Jesus Christ and his fulfillment of the law. It still remains for us. And a good example of that is Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. But first, let's look and see that the promise to Moses is the same. If you look at Exodus 2, chapter 24, if you look at Exodus uh, uh, verse 24, it says, God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and he knew. Now, we are people that have a real tendency to forget. This time of year, all over my house, even last night, you would see that On one desk is a list, on another table is a list, on the kitchen countertop is a list. There are lists for groceries, lists for Christmas gifts, people's others' Christmas gift wish lists. But that's because we have a tendency to be so distracted to forgetfulness because of so many things that we're trying to sort out as priorities. God had one priority. God didn't forget. 
It wasn't that God was idle or distracted. When he says he remembered, he always knew. But the the cruel bondage of his people, enslaved, the people who were supposed to be a great nation are now a great slave compound in bondage. And they had forgotten. They were the ones that God says, I remembered, meaning that it's always been in my memory. For 430 years, he's been at work on his side of the promise. And you'll notice there in verse 24 where it says that he knew. He saw Israel and he knew. And that's to say, it's time. He sees their groaning. He's always mindful of his covenant promise to make them into a great nation and bring them into the promised land. But now they're in a foreign land that is not promised to them, a great nation by numerically, but he wants to fulfill their side of the promise that they had, they had let lapse in forgetfulness, and he's wanting to make them further into a great nation now taken into the land. So the Lord in verse 3 addresses them. He addresses them through Moses, and he addresses them using their two names, the name of Jacob and the name of Israel. Now, there's a whole story contained in those bookend names. The name Jacob is a reminder of being met by God in lowly circumstances. And you can read the details in Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, you see that there is one man, Jacob, who is being sent out by his father, Isaac, and they have not realized the promise yet, except they're beginning to grow again numerically from grandfather Abraham. And he says, we haven't come into our land yet, but go. Later, Jacob, on the run, broken relationships with his his family, no wife, no kids, no land, but a father, Isaac, who pushed him out of the home, he is sent out into the wild, and God met him. And God met him. God, once again, observe, took the initiative. God once again, he didn't, we don't find Jacob shouting to the heavens in prayer and saying, God, remember your covenant, remember your promises to me. No, it's God coming to lowly Jacob and saying, I will not abandon you and I will not abandon my word to your fathers. I will keep my promises for you to be in relationship with me. So God met him and told him that he would keep his promises and later Uh, you read on in those chapters, he changes his name to Israel. Now, God is in essence saying, I came to you when it looked like I was not keeping my promises, but I came to you again and initiated to you, Jacob, which for us is synonymous of sinner, scoundrel, scandalous behavior. One who acts like he has no father, but he's an orphan, but he comes to him and he visits him and he brings his promise to bear in his life and he changes his name later to Israel. And we see that throughout the scripture. Israel, my people, my great nation, my kingdom people, now ready to move out to the promised land. So I I want you to observe that this nation that God is building, he began with Abraham, But this nation now with Moses is described how God 
and he wants our neighbors to see us. Look in verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation made up of people who are priests means that everybody is to be a priest in that nation, not just the preacher types, not just the Levites. This week, in reading a study of the 15 characteristics of today's unchurched people, the study included, number one, they, and that's the unchurched, want you to be a Christian. They, that's the unchurched, hate hypocrisy in us. They, that is the unchurched, love transparency in us. The covenant of God was God's witness to a watching world of what his kingship, what his kingdom, what his holy nation looked like. To be holy means to be set apart for a godly purpose or use. A lampstand. A lampstand was holy not because of its construction or because it was 99% pure gold. It was holy because it was set aside, used for God's holy use in His tabernacle, in His sanctuary. We are holy not because we are completely holy and pure in and of ourselves, but because God has set us apart as His people for His purposes to bestow His love upon us. A priest is to stand between God and people for the purpose of meditating and communicating. I'm a holy priest in my neighborhood. I'm a holy priest in my neighborhood when I pray for, bless, serve, love, counsel, witness, and maybe even invite my neighbor to come in to this holy nation of God. Yesterday, Yesterday, my next-door neighbor had a heart attack. Now, this is my rear-door neighbor, Charles. And we have, you've heard his name often when we do bidding prayer. I will volunteer Charles's name because I am Charles' priest. Now, I'm not Charles's preacher, but I am, because he is my neighbor, I am his priest. And so another neighbor came over to me when I was working in my backyard and said, Hey, uh, I saw Charles kind of wobbling around in his yard, and long story short, he was having a heart attack. I took him to the emergency room. They medevaced him uh, to have heart surgery, and I, I know that he came over. I saw him wobbling in the yard because he was in your yard looking for you. Well, I was inside, but Charles didn't make it to the front door. So last night, as I was getting ready for supper, Wendy had called the hospital to ask about what had happened to Charles. And they said, well, he's now got a room in ICU, and these are the visitation hours. And I looked at Wendy, and I said, you know, I'm not his preacher. I'm not his pastor. Do you think I should visit Charles? And what she said was, was both convicting and a little heartbreaking. She said, number one, you're his friend. And he knows that you're a Christian. And I doubt if anybody else will. And I'm glad. I'm glad that I went. I'm glad that I was able to go. He had five stints 
in all likelihood, 90% blockage in one, 70% blockage in another. I'm not a medical doctor, but I can tell you the doctors and the nurses were saying, it's amazing that you're not dead. How are you like a priest to your neighbor? Are you a secret agent? And listen, I'm not asking that you go and share a track with your neighbor. I'm not asking that you go and ask your neighbor to wear a Two Rivers t-shirt for a week or to, can we put a I Love Jesus bumper sticker on the car? And I'm not making fun of those things, but it's a much more subtle thing. You see, as priests, they were more often to be observed, to be observed as a joyful people with this king. There's no nation like ours. We boast in our God. He just beat Egypt to death in the plagues. Each of the plagues is associated with a false god that Egypt believed, Osiris, and then Ra, the sun god. And God turns the sky black, and, and Osiris with, with, with the crops, and he beats the crops. He beat every one of their gods. This is a priestly nation. Not that they're holier than thou and a religious people, but that they're a people that love their God. And they boast he's the greatest God in the universe. He made the universes. And he has called us lowly Jacob. He has called us not because we're the greatest tribe or because we're the most holy, but he has made us holy, set us apart for himself. Are you a priest in your neighborhood? Are you a priest to your neighbor? It can be as simple as daily praying for them, looking for opportunities to bless them and not curse them, and certainly serve them. Well, moving on here, you can see next that this promise to Moses, this covenant promise to Moses is also distinct. In verse 5, it reads like a, in verses 4 and 5, it reads like a contract where you see, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now, God, what God is doing here is he's taking the contemporary model for Moses of contracts, and he's taking an example from Moses' world, and he uses it as a template for the covenant, as a contract with people. It's called the Hittite Suzerain Treaty, meaning Hittite King Contract, Hittite King Treaty. And it's a, it's a contract of a promise of a king to a smaller nation or a person or a servant to provide and to protect them and under agreed terms. Now, these contracts had a format. They had a preamble. They had stipulations, they had vows that were exchanged, they had witnesses, it was read aloud, and it was sworn to with obedience. And you, we see that. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 is the preamble. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What he's saying is, here is the good news. Here's what I've done for you. Here is the kind of king that I am. Here's the provisions that I've made in the past. I swooped in speedily like an eagle, and I carried you, I delivered you out of bondage with Egypt. And now, if you're going to enter into a contract with me, here is the stipulations. Here are the requirements. 
verse 5, and you must obey my voice and keep my covenant. We'll look at that in just a moment, specifically what this covenant is. That spells out, the contract is not vague, keep my covenant, obey my voice. But it's spelled out, it's very, very specific, we're not left to wonder. But there's the, there are the stipulations, will you obey my voice and will you keep my covenant? That's what we have to do. And then notice that this was delivered through Moses, so it would be read aloud. Verse 9 says, Moses said, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. So this contract, which is coming up, is going to be read aloud by Moses from God. Moses, as God representative, is going to read it aloud with all the people. And in verse 8, we find that the people answered, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Now what's going on? They are saying, we agree. We witness this day. Witness us. We allowed as a people, so we're going to obey. We're going to hear your voice. We're going to obey your covenant. That's what they agreed to. And it was ratified. It was made. What God was saying by the form of a contract is, if you want to understand our relationship, understand that there is an exchange in a vows. I vow to be your God but you're taking a vow, think about a marriage vows. I'm vowing to be your husband, you're vowing to be my wife. And just like the rules in every friendship, it's saying, I will be your friend, and these are the things that I love doing for you and will do. And these are the rules that you have, and I will respect them in our relationship together. But it's a contract. He's the king, and we're the servants. We're not equals. And we don't negotiate after the contract is made. We don't get to say, I'm not going to listen to your voice anymore. To violate this contract is traitor. It's to be a, a, a traitor to the king. We're under the contract to be his and his only. But please observe that he is the king and we are his servants. But there's something else going on here. Palmer Robertson in his book, Christ in the Covenant, says that we must always see that the covenant relationship supersedes the rules, the law. Okay, so I had to look that up. <clears throat> I'm not that smart. I don't normally use English in such a manner. I, I haven't used supersede all year. But I'm going to start using it because it's a pretty cool term. It's a Scottish term, and supersede means to set on top of, to be on top of. So that would be like Ian coming up as a good Scotsman, and me and Ian getting in a wrestling match, and you would look and you would say, man, they are just going toe-to-toe, and who's going to win, and who's going who's to conquer the other? And then you see me sitting on top of Ian. Well, in that mashup, it's not to say that one is necessarily greater than the other. They're both important, but the relationship, Palmer Robertson says in Christ and the Covenant, the relationship of the covenant supersedes. It sits on top of the rules and the contract. In an intimate relationship, 
the parties are still required to maintain rules, but they're motivated by rules that excite the relationship. In other words, how do you see the law of God? Do you see the law of God as a burdensome contract and rules? Well, I'm a Christian, so I have to obey the Ten Commandments. I have to obey the rules of the Bible. Or do you say, first, I'm a Christian, and I'm in a relationship with God, and He pleases me very, very much, and I want to please Him. And so, the relationship sits on top of the rules. Very, very important that we get that straight this morning. In Exodus 34, verse 28. In Exodus 34, we find in verse 27 that God is now meeting with Moses once again to write two new tablets of the Ten Commandments. And I won't go down the side road to say, why the first tablets were destroyed. But God is doing it again. It's important that this contract, this, this covenant oath, that it be memorialized, that people could say, I, I've heard something about you. They could look at it, and they could see it, and it would be placed in the ark. And so God says, we're going to put it in stone again. But this time, he's calling and addressing the Ten Commandments as the covenant. Look at verse 28. Moses neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant. The Ten Commandments are the words of the covenant. And if you're like me, we don't have it on the screen, but if, if you're like me and you have a Bible with you this morning, you should have a footnote beside the word Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are here described as the words of the covenant, but the footnote describes them as the Ten Words. So the covenant with Moses is the Ten Commandments. So yes, those are the stipulations that the people are asked to sign and obey to fulfill their side of the agreement to be a holy nation with God agreeing to be their God. But look through the eyes of these first receivers. Fifty days ago, they were slaves. Fifty days. A mere 50 days ago, they were slaves. And now, they're standing before a holy God, and He's saying, this is what it's like to be my sons. Mine. And here is the contract. Here are the Ten Commandments. Can you recite the Ten Commandments? How far have we come from our treatment of the, the book of the covenant, the contract of the covenant, from being just a bunch of abstract or obscure rules to being rules of an intimate relationship. Here's a test for you, and I'll let you cheat. Go to Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, we find the contract rules. But now these slaves who are learning how to relate to a holy God, I begin, I believe that when Moses gave them this, it was overwhelming. It was totally overwhelming. Not to mention whether they were literate or illiterate. There wouldn't be any way to give this information out. 
But I believe based on Exodus 34 that Moses reduced it to ten words. I believe that's why synonymous with the Ten Commandments is the ten words. Would you on your own reduce the Ten Commandments to ten words and repeat them to yourself? Gods, little g, idols, vain, Sabbath, parents, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, coveting. And now look at those and say, how can I be led to fresh obedience in these things with relationship superseding these rules? These slaves look at these with delight and say, now we know how to please this God. He's so new to us. So, as we look through the eyes of those first uh, folks, we can see that these servants of a king in contract look at it with a relationship superseding. But there's one last thing, and that is that we have to recognize that finally the covenant promise of the law to Moses remains today. Jesus, in preaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, is giving us a renewed, clear application of the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but when he does all of the blessed, blessed are those that pursue peace, blessed are those that would see God, blessed are those that hunger and thirst, he is saying this is a way to a joyful relationship with God as king within his kingdom. Perhaps we could look at a few of those. If you have your Bible in Matthew 5, this is a good reason to bring a Bible. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this might bear some translation for you. But he's looking at us as a community at two rivers, and he's saying, here are the rules of a relationship with me. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that can repent. Blessed are those that can engage in humble self-forgetfulness. That it doesn't have to be about a richness of life and spirit, but with a humility we can serve one another. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are marked out as the priests. They are unusual in today's world. Look at that church. Look at that community of believers. Jesus is saying in all of these things that this is what God's family looks like. And that's the covenant promise that he made to Moses. I am taking slaves and I'm making them into sons and daughters. I'm going to tell you, I clung to Matthew 5 like a life raft in a storm. My boat had sunk, and I don't mean that literal. I mean that spiritually. I was in college. And for me, Matthew 5 was the rules for a newfound relationship with God. I was surrounded in college by boys telling me what a real man was like. But now, I had Jesus, the man. And Jesus, the man in my life, was telling me, not yelling, not preaching, as much as telling me through God's word, 
what walking with him looked like, what being in his house looked like, what being in his family, the community of believers, looked like. And I obeyed gladly. I wasn't left to doubt and figure it out. And I understood that there were other Jacobs that had come to be Israel's too. Other slaves that had come to learn what it meant to be a son and were learning what it meant to be a son and a daughter. I had a reason now for sexual purity. I had clear paths where to go and where not to go. It was with enthusiasm, not dread, that I went and I repented to my mother and my father for my teenage rebellion. I went and asked for forgiveness of my brother, like Jacob, after his encounter with God, to go and ask for forgiveness from Esau, that they might rebuild the relationship. All that was by obeying God's word, hearing his voice and obeying his word. But I did so enthusiastically because it meant, Phil, you don't have to to wonder what pleases God. Love God and obey him. Follow God. Walk with God. These are the rules for the relationship, but happy rules for those that love God and know and experience His love. So, in Moses' day, the law was received as a great gift, not a burden. Don't think that they they enthusiastically said, we'll obey, we'll obey. Jesus came, and He kept the law perfectly. Jesus never demonstrated the drudgery of obeying the law like it was a burden. It was his father's voice to him, and he obeyed. In Matthew 22, in Matthew 22, we see what I call the two rivers story. Jesus Christ, knowing that our own forgetfulness causes us to fail to remember the terms of the covenant, could distill all ten commandments, all ten words, down to two. The first four commandments talk about our relationship. The first four commandments talk about our relationship with God, the rules for relating to Him. No gods, no idols, no vain calling His name, Sabbath worship. And the other six talk about the rules of relating to one another. And that's a two river story. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love one another. Love God in the vertical and in the horizontal, love one another. And those two are inseparable. But I would say that loving God or experiencing His love, that supersedes keeping even both of those rules. I love God because I experience again that He loved me first. I love my neighbor and can be merciful, can be humble, can be kind, can serve because because God through Christ has become my neighbor. He drew very near at Christmas time. Do you see, do you see the gospel? Do you see the gospel in this text this morning? I would tell you that it's important to note, again, that preamble. Before God gives us the rules, He tells us of His love. Before He says, this is how to love me, He tells us, this is how I've loved you. Look at verse 4. Do you see what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wing and brought you to myself? And then in verse 5, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. In essence, he gives us two images. He says, 
like an eagle, I came and I took my young to a promised nest where they would be with me. And it said, I'm not an ornithologist, but it said that eagles pick up their young not with the talons, but they pick them up with their wings to fly with them. And it's as if anecdotally to say that the archer or the hunter would have to kill the eagle, the parent, in order to kill the child. Every arrow would have to first reach that heart before it reached the other heart. So it protects them and it's carrying. And then secondly, he says, you're my treasured possession. All the earth is mine, and out of all the treasures in the earth, you. You. My sons and my daughters. Matthew Henry says, it's as if God here is saying, I will keep you under lock and key for myself. Let the nations envy. For I look at all the world by comparison as so much trash and lumber. But that's not how he sees us. He sees us as his treasures. And now he says, let's be in relationship with one another. Receive my love. And this is how to walk in love with me. And he gives us strength. We're not strong enough to do that on our own. He gives us a visual this morning in this table. The Lord's Supper is strength to obey and keep the covenant and to feed our heart with faith again that God indeed loves us. Look how he values us. He died. He shed his own blood for us. Look how he has delivered us. He's carried us indeed out of our bondage. And he's going to carry us from our sin and our shame all the way to our new nest, home, the very promised land. Let's pray. Father, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Oh, until we get to that distant shore. But Father, strengthen us in the world that we walk through. Strengthen us. Strengthen us and with this food, with the very love of Christ, with the very image of Christ dying for us to be his treasured possession and in relationship to us, strengthen us to be holy, more set apart for you, to be priests, to serve others and not simply ourselves. And all before an unchurched watching world, May we not be the hypocrites. May we be ever transparent. May we be the people that you have called us to be. Strengthen us, Holy Spirit. We cannot do it without you. Strengthen us even from this table, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.